Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you live on tape from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. Very excited to introduce my guest, Taylor Lorenz of The Atlantic. How are you, Taylor? Hi. I think of Taylor as my guide to young people's internet. Oh. <laughs> or, or the internet that I don't get, or the internet that I probably should understand since I write about it, but <laughs> I've got Taylor to explain it to me. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. How would you describe your job? Um, I write about internet culture broadly, um, mostly about sort of communication technology, so like social media or other ways, any way that uh, technology is facilitating sort of communication. So you have read Taylor's stuff, even if you're not aware that you've read Taylor's stuff, because about once or twice a month, some story of yours goes massively viral about some <laughs> weird, crazy shit on the internet that everyone goes, I can't believe this is happening, and, but you consistently do these things. Yeah, it's my, it's how I make a living. But the last, what was yeah. your last, the last one I remember reading that was like, holy shit, was uh, with the Instagram influencers who'd created like a the fake deck, engagement. The pitch deck. Yeah. Oh no, it was very, well, it was very, there. The, yeah, it was very real. So basically these two, uh, well, one woman who was an Instagram influencer and her financier husband sort of were planning to get engaged. It's debatable whether she knew about it or not, but someone created an entire pitch deck outlining the their engagement and pitching it, the surprise engagement and pitching it to brands. So the idea was, we're going to get married. We're, we're going to get, get engaged. engaged. You can sponsor our engagement. And we want you, our special brand, to be part of this like once-in-a-lifetime moment. And we're going to walk around documenting our engagement, yes. which involves flying to different states and then eventually to different countries, yeah. and we can promote your product while we go. Yeah, yeah. And you believe that's a real engagement and a real couple? Well, they're definitely a real couple. They've been together a long time. They, like, seem, they seem very... Uh, I think, honestly, they're perfect together. Okay. <laughs> like, I mean— They seem real in the way that a reality show couple seems real. Yeah. They might I mean, be real, but it seems like— I think they're real. I mean, they've been together a really long time, um, and I think he's not an influencer himself. So he's kind of just going along with he's whatever adjacent. to make her happy, you know? Yeah, but, it, I mean, it is—that uh, whole thing was so performative. Like, the whole engagement was so performative, and the— it, yeah, I mean, it was so that was a story show. where I read it, and it's a holy shit thing. Can you believe this is what's happening with our culture? And you had some of that tone, but I think one of the things that's really striking about the work you do is that you're explaining this this culture that is awfully weird to a lot of people, especially people like me. But you you're not sneering at them. You seem to, in a lot of ways, take them at face value. You're explaining the business and, and the mechanics of how all this works, but sort of in a like, this is what is going on. You may not like it, but here it is. Yeah. Um, talk about your approach to writing about social media, internet culture. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something I feel very strongly about is I hate, I mean, part of the reason I decided to even like get into writing about it, um, about that whole world, especially the influencer world, was that I just hated how it was being covered. Um 
you know, generally not covered by mainstream media. Well, it was media. basically being ignored, and then the people that were covering it were just like sneering at, at influencers or sneering at young people or sneering at all these other things. Um, a lot of, of which I cover now, um, and it kind of bothered me because, as someone who spends a lot of time on the internet, like I think a lot of these. I mean, look, like influencers can be so cringy. I'm not saying that like there aren't a lot of times that I don't roll my eyes when I'm on the phone interviewing someone. But, you know, I just think that you miss the broader and more important stories when you're like rolling your eyes at stuff or whatever. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I just try to always like empathetically approach people. I, part of it is like, okay, so I was really into Tumblr back in the day, RIP, like a decade ago, literally. Um, and and there were websites that wrote a lot about a lot of like Tumblr communities I was kind of involved in, in like a really sneering way. And it bothered me so much because- You were I, using it just as a user, as someone yeah, who liked hanging out. I was out a power stuff. user. Okay. Like I made- so many tumblers, like some of which were popular, some of which were less popular. But uh, yeah, it just bothered me when like these subgroups I was sort of involved in on the internet would get covered by like, I hate to be like mainstream media, but mainstream media in this like really condescending, sneery way or like, look at these weirdos on the internet. And now you, know? you are in the mainstream media yeah. running there at the Atlantic. Yeah, so anyway, I, so anyway, I always think back to that because I'm like, I don't want to be that asshole that's like, oh, like look at these lame ass people. It's like, well, these people clearly have money, power, by the way, the influencer industry is, you know, $10 billion and growing. Like, it's a huge market. and um, That's brands. That's advertisers brands, paying people yeah. to engage uh, with yeah. their audience. And same thing with, like, young people. I mean, often, I, I, I hate the whole, like, teen oracle, like, let's ask six young people what they think of something. But, you know, oftentimes, like, they'll, like, emergent behaviors will, will come from these young people using these Apps, and that might say something broader about the product. Or you, are, you are the journalist I've wanted to see. I've been sort of imagining someone like you for years. The first time I went to VidCon. You conjured me. I conjured because I said, <laughs> this is this amazing scene where you've got 12 and 14-year-old When was your first person. VidCon? Probably five or six years ago. Yeah. And people said, this is going to be kind of like the Beatles. I'm like, no, it's not. And then sure enough, it's this, and it's this crazy energy. 12, 14-year-old girls yelling at 20-year-old guys that in another era would have been in boy bands. Yeah. But are now YouTube celebrities. Yeah. At the time were YouTube celebrities. And it's a crazy, you should, if you're at all interested in what we're talking about here, you should go to, I guess it's in Anaheim. Yeah. It's gotten so corporatized. Like now it's funny thinking back even to like 2015 when like you could just walk around up. You know, now there's a lot more um, like metal detectors. You have to have badges everywhere. I was they thinking a lot about that because it's it's one of the things that was really striking about it was these, the, these I guess you call them influencers now, yeah. I would call them YouTube stars, <laughs> yeah. are huge deals to the fans, but they're still, at the time, the the there wasn't that much of a, a, a window between them. It was a pretty permeable barrier, if yeah. I'm using the word correctly. And you could probably get up and touch some of them. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm like, that, that can't sustain itself. No, that became a safety issue, and they really kind of cracked down. But I, I you know, I'm, I would tell everyone you should go. I would write about it a little bit, and I'd say, this is the thing is I'm a 40-whatever-year-old man. I can't really walk up to the 12-year-olds and interview them. I mean, I can, but it's just weird. I need someone who's... Smart, closer in age. Can I ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm in my early 30s. I actually paid this data firm to like, you know, fix all my privacy because I kept getting doxxed by like literal 
13-year-old Jake Paul fans, and they're like, stop saying your personal information on the internet. So I'm trying to okay. not say my birthday or anything, but I'm Don't in my early 30s. You could pass for younger, but the point is you're, you're oh, native thanks. to it. <laughs> yeah. and, and you needed someone who could do that spelunking or the Jane Goodall, or I imagine sort of some version of Tom Wolf, where you're, you can be in that mix and then step out and say, here's what's going yeah. on to the adults. Yeah, it's funny though. I will say one thing is I saw this comment recently made by this fellow journalist that was saying like, I'm 30 years old, so I'm the perfect age to cover this moment or whatever. And to be honest, it kind of irked me. Like one person that I've always looked up to my entire career is Katie Natopoulos, who's, you know, several, at BuzzFeed. Yeah, yeah, at BuzzFeed. She's several years older than me, but she is this internet culture reporter that also just always took the internet really seriously. And but does amazing reporting. And like, she's always been kind of like my idol and she's older than me and she's gets it. Like, I, I don't, I hate like when people are like, oh, you're young. So you get it. It's like a lot of young people don't get it. And a lot of people in their fifties get it. It's just like, I think it's like an openness and a willingness to like understand things. Obviously, like I get what you're saying. Like, you're not going to go like hang out with a bunch of TikTok stars, um, you know, and, f- and maybe feel at home. But no. I think there is also just this like, a thing that's not tied to age, that's just like an openness and an empathy to, to other people that like kind of anyone can have. I've, I'm now old enough that my kids are starting to engage with this stuff. So yeah. I, can, I can sort of loop around and pick up on what they're doing. Yeah. But that's also cringy. <laughs> um, I want to I ask you about VidCon and all the platforms, yeah. but I do, I do want to spend a little bit more time about how you got to this. Were you a, on a traditional journalism track? No, 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 no. That's what I thought. <laughs> no, no, no. I definitely did not anticipate ending up in journalism. I wasn't really into journalism at all before. Um, so, like, my my career is so all over the place, but I'll try and shorten it. But basically, I graduated. I was working a bunch of random temp jobs. I got extremely into Tumblr, like 16, 17, 18 hours a day on Tumblr for, like, two years. Reading Tumblr, consuming Making Tumblr. Tumblr's trying to make things go viral on Tumblr, like just joining every kind of weird community that I could on Tumblr, like randomly messaging people, like whatever. It is difficult to remember now that Tumblr was a really big deal in internet culture. I mean, it came out of nowhere, got really big, and then kind of vanished almost overnight. But about 10 years ago, like 2009, 2010 is when I got on it, um, like right after college. And that was when media companies were on it. Like NPR was on Tumblr, like BuzzFeed was on Tumblr. And so like I very quickly like made friends with the people that were running those those Tumblrs. And so, like, I kind of met a lot of media and advertising and tech people that way. Um, I went to, like, Tumblr meetups and uh-huh. stuff. <laughs> um, that was, like, my social scene. Uh, and so, anyway, that just got me into the broader internet. Um, so, anyway, I got hired at this ad agency, McGarry Bowen, um, to run social for a bunch of brands. So you became one of the young people hired to do social. Yeah, they for- were like, oh, you made a bunch of really popular, t- really popular that time was like several thousand followers. But like, like, oh, you know, we know you from this one thing. You know the internet makes them Yeah, now go us. run the Bud Light Facebook page. So I did. Uh, and I liked it a lot. Um, and then I did that for like a year and a half maybe. And then I was obsessed with the Daily Mail. That was like the only news website I ever read. And, uh, they didn't even have like Facebook share buttons or a Facebook page or anything. And so I ended up sort of getting in touch with the publisher through sort of mutual, like, this whole long connection. But anyway, so they hired me as their first ever social media editor. I built out their entire social team, ran all their like real-time news basically on social. And this is an area where a lot of media companies are saying, 
oh, we need to hire yeah. someone to do the internet for us. And there was a, I think, I don't know, it was a bubble, but there's definitely like, oh, there, there, there was, was like, a, that was like this time when also like you had so much power. Like I was the youngest woman in management at Daily Mail. Right. There was someone at the Times who was the equivalent of you. Yeah. That was a big deal. Right, right, right. Like, it's funny, like that era of social media editors, like basically you got to do what, like, you just like rose very quickly. So yeah, like I was managing this team of 11. I was like in these board meetings going to executive retreats. Like anyway, so that was kind of, I was like, you know what? I love media and I love news and I love like media. Um, And so I didn't think I would be a reporter. I didn't think I was a very good writer. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be a reporter. But anyway, from that, um, after I left the Daily Mail, I kind of like, just did a bunch of random jobs. I was like consulting for a year and a half, also still with the Daily Mail, but like also doing all these other projects. I launched a sub brand for People Magazine for Time Inc. focused on what they were calling internet celebrities. At the time it was YouTubers. And that was all like this distributed media brand of content on social, did all that. I then for two years, I moved to DC and ran um, social for The Hill, which is, um, yeah. I worked for Nitsan Zimmerman there, who's also like a mentor of mine. who used to be at Gawker for a long time. He was the, the brief media celebrity at Gawker because he, he had this magic viral uh, uh, re- reputation for making things go viral. Yeah. Nitsan, I knew from Tumblr and is also like a really big, like, I would say idol of mine. Like he's very smart about the internet and really gets it. So I just wanted to work for him. So, so. you're doing great. So you're you're yeah. you're bouncing around media. You're doing social stuff. That, People like then, you. Like, yeah, what, like, what what? It seems like a terrible idea to go go into actual journalism. I know, I know, I know. So I didn't ever. I would like write random like parody things for BuzzFeed or like funny things. Um, but Cooper Fleischman, who is. Um, he is now at Mel Magazine, but he used to be the tech editor at the Daily Dot and then Mike.com. Uh, was like, Taylor, you know, you're always telling me about this stuff. Like, you should write about this stuff that you're talking about all the time on the internet. And I kind of was like, yeah, all right. If you let me do that, like, if you let me pick my stories and you let me do whatever I want, sure. So Cooper let me do that for like at the Daily Dot for a minute while he was there. And then at Mike, he just let me be like a contributed there for a year, and I could publish whatever I wanted, literally, on the website, which was amazing. And I'd, I'd seen your byline a bunch of places, and then where I really noticed it was when you were at the Daily Beast. Well, so yeah, so basically my mic stuff got noticed by a lot of editors, and that's when people started reaching out to me like, hey, would you want to do this full-time? So Noah Shackman at Daily Beast was yeah. like, hey, do you want to take like a massive pay cut and cut your salary in half and do this full-time? <laughs> And I was like, sure. Uh, Why not? My parents were like, this is the dumbest idea you've ever had. But I did. And uh, it was great. And and I, yeah. And sort of learned the basics of journalism sort of on the fly. Yeah. That was, I had to learn about reporting. I mean, one of my, my first week there was when I had this interview with the CEO of HQ that was kind of viral and crazy. It was the one where he screamed at me and Mm -hmm. like, anyway. um, Yeah. Luckily, I had an amazing editor there named Ben Collins, who is now at NBC, and he very much was, like, just a great mentor. Like, he just let me write about whatever I want, but, like, encouraged me and taught me how to do all these things, like, look up things and investigate things. And um, you, like, hold people accountable and don't be scared to, like, yell at the Facebook PR rep if they're being crazy. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, anyways, you're getting it. Yeah. So, I did, the, I, I did that, and then I came to the Atlantic, and it's been great. So the the other uh, there's I'm sure there are many of these, but but people I know who have started off sort of in social media in yes. marketing and crossed over and have really rocketed up. There's you, and then Helen basically runs the Verge. Helen and she's is got the amazing. Yeah, yeah. Hel- I mean Helen. I, here's the thing. 
I always tell this to journalism students. These journalism students are always like, oh, I'm going to write for the you know college paper, whatever, whatever. And it's like this world that we live in, you have to understand the internet. And so much it's, I would say maybe like 60% of my time is like reporting and writing stories and 30 to 40% is like promotion and framing and like thinking about all of like. I've made the thing. Now I need to push it out in the world. And yeah. it's my job to think about that. I can't just hand it over to the social media team. No, at like thinking and also thinking about that when you're writing this story. Like, yeah. how is it going to be shared and seen? See, I think there are a lot of people listening, cringing, saying, wait a minute, I still want to just go write the story and I do want to hand it over to the social media team. And maybe I'll think about that, but the story is the yeah. story. And by the way, go write for the student paper. Totally. Tell you it's how to great, do by the way. Definitely write for your student paper. And and some reporters, I get it, are not going to be like a social genius. Some people are going to just be like an incredible investigator and that's their thing. Um, but for me and for a lot of young people, I think understanding the mechanics of how people consume news um, and share news and engage with it is really helpful when you're thinking about story framing and identifying news. I, I think that's like a big problem is like I get pitches from young people too, like, hey, do you think this is good? And it's usually like very boring or not really a story. And so I think like working in social is just great training. Plus, you get to see every area of the newsroom. You get to interact with everyone. It's just like a great entry level job. Like people should do that job instead of like, I don't know what other like instead of like a junior or whatever job. Like, I don't know what other. I don't want to shade anyone's job. So I'm hesitant. Yeah, no, to say. jobs are good. We, we're Take a job in media if you can get it. They're not. They're if kind you can, of hard if to you come can live by. on the salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but anyway. All right. This has been Taylor's advice to young journalism students. We're going to take a pause and we'll be right back. Back here with Taylor Lorenz, who has convinced me to quit journalism and go into social media. <laughs> so this is my last podcast. Thank you, everyone. Peter, you're going to be a TikTok star. <laughs> You want to start talking about TikTok? I want, sure. I want, I want you to guide me through the internet. I mean, TikTok's sure. definitely on my list. Um, I'm a little, I get the basic premise of TikTok, but I'm a little confused about how it became a giant thing because I remember Musically yeah. was a, basically a lip-syncing app that was briefly very popular and there was a lot of concern because it was a Chinese company and definitely should not be, you know, in theory, you can't be younger than 13, but it was being widely used in, in grade schools. And then it, petered out a little bit, and it sold to this uh, Asian company called ByteDance. And as I was writing about it, saying this is sort of, you know, it's a good at exit, but it's not, you know, this is a company that has sort of petered out, and that's why it's selling. Cut to now, that company basically is TikTok, right? Yeah. So what happened? So as you mentioned, ByteDance, which is this massive tech conglomerate in China, owns it. Um, TikTok, they had had, which is sort of similar to Musical.ly in a lot of ways, um, had launched internationally. It was it was gaining like serious traction abroad. I mean, it's called Douyin in China, so they have a lot of Chinese users, but it's also huge in Southeast Asia and India. And um, so about a year ago, last August, um, ByteDance was like, let's launch in the United States. Like Musical.ly, as you mentioned, had plateaued. So they were like, let's pull that, you know, port those users over to TikTok and do this big relaunch and try to get TikTok some traction here. So um, that's exactly what happened last August. They they ported all the Musical.ly people over to TikTok. Like all those users were given TikTok accounts. And then they literally, I mean, you're asking why you've heard so much about it. They spent a billion dollars in marketing last year, um, according to the Wall Street Journal. So, um, but you can spend all you want. You can't make people use something. I kind of I agree with that to a point, but I think that like 
it hit at this point where like, one, they're spending so much really effectively. Um, and two, there's this like fatigue with the other apps that we have. So I agree that like you can spend your way into oblivion and like only get a certain amount of users. But I think that the the way that they spent, the people that they targeted to, which was young people, wanted something else, wanted something other other that, that isn't being met by Instagram and Twitter, basically. And, and talk about what how they're using it. Because a lot of the apps will have sort of Here's the use we think you're going to yeah. – here's what we think you're going to do with it. And then oftentimes in really interesting ways, the users say, actually, Instagram is a messaging app. Yeah. And we're using it to – and, you know, in a lot of cases, the old people don't realize when that their kids are – the posting photos on Instagram is secondary to what they're actually doing, which is chatting. So how does the TikTok user use TikTok? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know without tons of data, but just anecdotally from spending lots of time on TikTok um, and running a TikTok Instagram account, I can tell you uh, it's mostly, I mean, it's mostly the way that mostly young people are using it is like this very meme way. Like it's a lot of participatory memes. So it's like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of challenges on TikTok. Like TikTok has this challenge culture where they do weekly challenges and how that helps you go viral. Challenges. I made a video. You're going to do something similar. Yeah, exactly. A challenge is like, I mean, you could think of it almost almost as like the ice bucket challenge where it's like, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to spread because everyone else wants to do their own version of it. Um, I would say like that, that like challenge mindset is ingrained in everything in TikTok. So, I mean, with TikTok, you do these short form videos set to sound and you can take that sound and make your own video. So people will take a song clip and put and make their own sort of like video take on it. Uh, it's right, hard so to you're making short music videos, essentially. Yeah, exactly, sort of, yeah. Which, again, had Talk. existed. There's an Instagram version of that. There was a Vine version of yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't the same, though. I mean, Vine, first of all, was very hard to add music. You couldn't easily add music uh-huh. clips. It was like a very, like, sort of rudimentary product. Um, Instagram had similar things, but it doesn't have the culture and it's it's set up differently. And I mean, they really didn't have actually a lot. I mean, they cloned a lot of these features from TikTok in the last year. But I mean, if you think last August, they didn't have the same kind of like sound experience, I guess. And is this, is is the primary appeal from a TikTok user that I'm con- looking at other people's stuff or that I'm making my own or both? Yeah, I mean, I guess most users primarily consume on any social mm-hmm. platform. And that's definitely most likely true for TikTok. But it encourages you to create um, and create on, on your own. Your own. I would say like one other thing that's different when you think about Instagram um, is like Instagram stories are not discoverable. Like Instagram's core video product, which is stories, there's no real like discovery for, for cool, interesting, funny right. stories. You pick who you're going to follow. Exactly. And then they give you stuff, but you won't know about other stuff happening on Instagram. There's a search thing, but it, you there's really— There's explore, but it doesn't really surface like interesting stories, content, and you can't search based off that sound or anything. Um, TikTok, I mean, TikTok breaks the follow graph, so you don't need to follow anyone on TikTok to experience that app, which is very different than basically every other U.S. social network. Um, and your your primary experience of it is this For You feed, which is kind of like the Instagram Explore page, where it's just feeding you video content Here's cool that you stuff. might like. What'd you say? Here's cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, And it kind of learns what you like over time. Um, which, again, we sort of, you know, we spend we are spending a lot of time discussing how that works on YouTube, and it's yeah. dismaying a lot of people. But here— It's it, different than that, though. I mean, YouTube obviously has problems with extremism, and you can go down these really toxic rabbit holes. TikTok, it's, it's more wholesome. I mean, not to say that there aren't, like, dumb conspiracies and some bad stuff on TikTok and bullying, but it's more tightly moderated. Um, their issues are more that maybe younger people are using it. it. Seems like some 
kids under 13 are definitely using oh, definitely. it. <laughs> Seems like. So, uh, you know, they need to get a handle on that probably. But, do, you know, do kids you think under they, 13 do you use think Instagram they, all day. So I was going to ask you, I mean, I remember when Musical.ly was a thing, there was a lot of discussion about this is a Chinese company and they're definitely breaking the COPA laws and they don't seem to care. Do you have a sense of how TikTok is different is TikTok different because it is a Chinese-based company? Are they doing something that's different than a, no, a U.S.-based company? it's not. Well, what they're doing is the product is so different. I mean, it's not that they're, oh, they're letting in all this six-year-olds, so that's why they have growth. No, the product is so interesting and different. Like, the follow, the, the notion of breaking, like, follow following is like a— that, that's very different than all of our other social apps. Like every social app in America, like pretty much is the same. Like you follow people, you subscribe to their content, and then, um, you know, you get this feed. And that was stuff. considered a giant improvement because that's the prior to that. People Magazine or NBC.com right. or someone would say, here's what's interesting. And, and the idea was, yeah, you can go out and find your own stuff. We don't need to – we don't need to have someone to package this stuff for you. You can get it yourself. Yeah, And this yeah. is kind of going backwards. Well, it sort of is. I mean, in a sense that, like, you can still follow – you can still seek out that content uh -huh. for yourself and you can still create a – you can still follow people on TikTok and have that experience in a separate feed. But I think that we're seeing there's a lot of fatigue on, on the side of users. Like, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's not very efficient. Users often don't know what they want, and it's not really efficient for a user to self-curate their feed. It's also not good from a person that's making stuff because if somebody subscribes to you, they expect you to fit this, you know, conform to this very narrow um, idea of like, you know, oh, you know, Peter, you post about blue T-shirts all day. So if you post about something else, I'm going to be like, you know, un unfollow. You should check out my blue T-shirt feed. It's pretty good. <laughs> Peter's wearing a blue T-shirt, so that's what made me think of it. But you know what I mean? Like, um, and, and what would be, you know, what, what TikTok does is, it allows each piece of content to kind of find its own audience. That kind of happens on Twitter too, right? Like tweets can go viral within their own, you know, networks, but it still relies on followers. One person's bringing it to this their, their followers and this person's bringing it to their followers. TikTok just like takes all the content, mixes it up, and then uses this like AI algorithm to determine what you want so to feed it to you. For a while, there was this sort of cadence that I had gotten used to, like, this is the next big social slash media thing, and then it's going to rise and fall, and it'll be replaced and overtaken, and MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, Vine, et cetera, at Snap, and then it stopped after Snap. I think Snap was like 2010, 2011. And for a while, there has been this question of, well, maybe there won't be another big thing. And is that because Facebook and Instagram are so huge, they're squelching <laughs> it? And then we've got TikTok. Do you think we go back to, all right, TikTok ascends for a while and then gets replaced by something else and that's the Here, natural order? So here's the thing. I hate this question that people always ask me. They probably Sorry. ask, oh, no, no, not you. Okay, not good. the one that you're asking. But people probably ask you the same thing, which is that, like, what's the big social platform, mm -hmm. right? And it's like— Well, they've stopped asking because yeah, they know yeah. the answer. It's Instagram. But here's the thing, right. But um, here's the thing. Like, when these companies were founded, like, say, like, when Snap was founded, which maybe was around 2011 or something, like, there was no awareness of, like, influencer culture and the power of audience and how you could monetize yourself. Like none of that was there yet. So like, I think these were, were founded. And then now only in the past few years has it entered mainstream consciousness. Like, wow, like we can really exploit these platforms. Like these big broadcast-based public, um, you know, social platforms I can use to my own benefit and like leverage in these certain ways. So there's so much attention on like, what's the big thing? What's the next big thing that I can leverage in some way, right? 
And I think now that there's so much awareness around that, it's so hard. Like an app is never going to come out of nowhere. Like people are going to know, like TikTok, like. But this one did come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It launched in the U.S., Uh but like people became aware of it and like teenagers went on it immediately as they do on all of these apps to try to gain an audience and then port that audience over to somewhere they can monetize it or try to monetize it immediately. So it's like, I I think. But you're talking about two different things. One is. Who's going to exploit a thing that is popular versus who's going to make the thing popular by actually using it? They make it popular by using it, too. Like, I think that it is the same thing. It, it's it's the same thing. Like if you if you you know at VidCon this year, like the big story was all these TikTokers. If you interview all those TikTokers, and Callan wrote a piece on this for NBC News, but which is true, like they're on it because they like see it as fertile ground to gain followers, which they know that they can then port over to Instagram or YouTube where they're more valuable. But in the past, people have said, "Oh, YouTube is under fire from." Instagram, Facebook, whomever, yeah. they're coming after them. And generally, people didn't sort of transfer over. They sort of stayed on YouTube. They would try the other platforms, yeah. but YouTube, in part because YouTube was the place they could make money. Yeah. Um, and so I did read some of the stories saying, look out, YouTube. TikTok's but coming this time around. No, that's it, TikTok isn't going to, like, come for YouTube. It's different. I mean, maybe people will spend a little more time here, a little more time there. Uh-huh. YouTube is still the, the place that you can run pre-roll ads and monetize most effectively. And So you will still, if you are an influencer who wants yeah. to make money, if you want to be a popular person making money on the social media, on the social media, <laughs> on the internet, you will continue to use YouTube, and your and your users will find you there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but most also, likely. Most likely. Like, it depends on the type of person you are, right? Like, if you're an Instagram model, you don't maybe need a YouTube to monetize yourself. TikTok is video. I mean, it's video first, and a lot of these people are wannabe YouTubers. I mean, a lot of the early people on TikTok, early, like, influencers, you could say, are people that aspire to be YouTubers. There was a period uh, a few years ago when uh, Jason Kyler, who'd run Hulu, had this new thing called Vessel. Yeah. He was explicitly trying to, like, grab YouTube uh, stars and port them over. And YouTube spent a lot of time and money trying to fight him back. How is YouTube responding to, to TikTok this time around? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that they necessarily care yet because it hasn't totally, like, affected their user base and they have all these other issues. Um, also, I think that YouTube sees that, like, they have the dominance in terms of monetization. That said, they they are doing a lot to, to fight it off. I mean, like, they've kind of launched a lot of story formats and shorter formats um, on their platform that make it easier for people to create content in the moment. Like, they have the YouTube stories. They have these status updates you can post so that it, it's not such a lift to create, like, a vlog, you know? And, yeah, I, I would say, like, the monetization thing is, too. Like, I mean, that was their big announcement at VidCon this year. It was, like, look at all these ways we can help you monetize. Like, they still want to maintain that spot right. of, like— Because if TikTok makes an effective way for TikTokers to monetize, everyone will just be like, well, fine, then I'm just a TikToker for life. You know, people just need and, and, a way to And you think themselves. the audience ports— you, th- you think you can, if you have an audience on YouTube and you can make it worth your while to go to TikTok or name your social platform, the audience will come with you and yeah, find Yeah, people you. come with you. I mean, look at David Dobrik. Like, he launched a TikTok and had several million—David Dobrik's a famous YouTuber, has millions of followers on YouTube, launched a TikTok, has millions of followers on TikTok overnight. Like, with, people want to follow these people wherever. For a long time, I would— Back in the MySpace days, even you'd someone would become famous or insta famous, uh, and then you would say, and then the question would be, are they going to make the jump to real media? Yeah. And periodically, you know, uh, someone makes a Nickelodeon show or someone yeah. gets a USA show. Uh, Lily Singh is going to have a show on NBC. None of them have sort of 
if, if I, you tell me, but I, my perception is none of it really works. The audience does not move from the internet to traditional media, or at least not in big enough numbers to make it worthwhile. Yeah. Do you think that's still the case? Yeah, I think that's still the case. I mean, I think a lot of these people, though, aren't really, like, they don't have the skill set, and, and it's not as interesting to see them in some boring TV format. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of reasons why, why, why as, in terms of, just what they can do and whether it works. But you'd figure at some point, I mean, that, that was the big question was, yeah. will this audience move? And then the other, and then sometimes you hear from the internet folks saying, I don't want to do that. My audience is here. Yeah. I always assume that there's a check and they would take it if they could do it. I think it depends on like, I mean, all the different aspirations that these people have. Like some of them do very much like want to be traditional actors and they're using that as a springboard. Some of them don't. I, I would say like with the younger generation though, that distinction is not there. Like it's very much like I'm a young actor and of course I vlog because everyone vlogs and like it's very fluid and like, you know, they're all defining themselves as influencers. Maybe they're on a Netflix show. Maybe they're not right now. Like it's very all over the place. Also, these people who get big, like Noah Centineo, for instance, right? Like is cast in a couple hit Netflix teen rom-coms. Started and- started off becoming famous because he was cast as an actor on right. Netflix. Right, but then developed this overnight massive following on Instagram and social media, which he can now sort of use to do whatever he wants if he wants to go full-time kind of like YouTuber, influencer, whatever. How is that different than, I don't know, Kevin Hart being famous from TV shows and movies and then uh, starting an Instagram or Twitter account and having a lot of followers? Because yeah. he does that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And lots of th- stars do would, it, but it doesn't seem to be the same thing. Yeah, I would just say it's different. I would just say the way they use it is differently. Like, it seems like this generation of, like, young younger Hollywood people use it in a more fluid way. Like a lot of traditional celebrities like join Instagram or join social media and they kind of like aren't really native to it. And they're just like using it to share like little updates of their life, but it's not very participatory. They're not like following and engaging with their fan accounts. They're not like on it all day, like using it in a more like native way, I guess. You've, you've mentioned a couple times, you know, TikTok is sort of doesn't have controversy or nothing bad has happened there yet. But I mean, while YouTube or Facebook yeah. does. Just a general question. So media spends, a, has in, over the last couple of years, spending a lot of time scrutinizing, criticizing YouTube, Facebook, Twitter for all their many faults, including destroying democracy. Yeah. I'm curious whether you think that spotlight and that sort of negative sentiment that you would see if you read a Vox.com or Recode yeah. or Verge story um, – transfers over to the users, if the users feel that way about the platforms. You mentioned exhaustion. Is that just because they're tired of the platform or they actually, they have a problem with hate speech or extremism? Um, I don't know if they have a problem themselves with extremism and hate speech. I would say like what I see from users is mostly just like a fatigue and a general like malaise where it's like, oh, I'm bored. I feel like I'm bored on here. Like I, I did a story last year on like being phone bored, which is like, you're not going to stop using Instagram, but you're just kind of bored with it and you want something new and fun and interesting. And I think that's what's the problem with this whole like follower, followee like relationship is like for you to find that new interesting thing, it's like you have to find someone else and follow it instead of just getting served to you. I wouldn't say like, I mean, uh, Twitter is one where it's a terrible user experience. It's why they're not going to continue to scale very much. I keep seeing Twitter posts from you announcing that you're leaving Twitter. No, I tweeted once that I was leaving Twitter, and I, I left for like a week. Maybe, obviously. maybe you, maybe you repeat it. I, I no. keep, I'm, I'm done with Twitter. I'm done with this hell site. Once. Follow me on Instagram. Once I tweeted that. Well, I'm always trying to get people to follow me on Instagram. I only like deactivated once because like I was getting so annoyed with all my notifications for some 
you know, Twitter's Twitter. I'm a power user of Twitter, right? Like I've been on Twitter forever. I have like almost hundred thousand followers. Like my experience of Twitter is different than a lot of normal people, but a lot of teenagers use Twitter and their experiences of it are, are equally negative. Like I talked to a lot of, I mean, this 16 year old girl that I know just got bullied off Twitter like multiple times this year. Like, because so it, that's a real thing. Cause there's a lot of the bullying stories seem to me like it's a real thing, but it affects famous people because no. who's going to bully someone who's not famous? Uh, who's going to bully someone that's not famous? A million trolls. Like, if mm. your tweet gets sucked into the wrong group, like, suddenly your life is hell. It and happens to, and you, that's to, every to you user. a lot. Well, I, I mean, mean, what happens to me because I'm always, like, tweeting dumb shit. But, like, yeah. And you're a woman. I'm a woman. I'm outspoken. I sometimes, you know, have been open that I'm a feminist. Like, and sometimes, right? You're writing about uh, Jake Paul or a Logan yeah, Paul. Yeah, I mean, or that's, a Paul my and, version of harassment is either like legitimate, like Nazis and men's rights activists, or like pre-teen YouTuber fans. What a great combination! Yeah, it's just the best part of the internet. The kids, I don't really care. I mean, those are the kids that have doxxed me a couple times, but like ultimately, they're like twelve-year-olds, and I'm sure you know, if I had access to Twitter when I was like an NSYNC fan, like I would have been equally vicious. Like it's just, they're young. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't want to excuse them, but like it's also, it's the platform's responsibility to kind of rein some of that in. Twitter is just a, a broken product in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, w- I went around and around with Susan Wojcicki at the Code Conference. Yeah. And I think about this for all the platforms. It seems to me that all these platforms that are built to, they have this platform structure and they're by default open, that they're the business and legal and advertising and also just sort of philosophic underpinnings are anyone can use this thing. Anyone can do what they want. If people are badly behaved, we'll come after them after the fact. Yeah. This is what we're doing. It seems like that is not sustainable at the scale they're at. And no matter how much good faith they put into hiring people and training AI, they're always going to have these problems. Are we stuck with that structure or do you think we're going to have something else? Hopefully we're not stuck with that structure. I think there is, I mean, even though like what I was saying, a lot of users don't care, but I think there is public backlash against like a lot of the stuff these companies are doing. I think suddenly people feel like, wow, these, you know, big platforms are playing this kind of nefarious role in democracy in our society and they need to be held accountable. And that's why you see the people talking about breaking up Facebook and all that. I think you should, I know you're doing really well, but I think you should, you should get out of journalism and just people pay you an enormous amount of money to guide you through the internet. It's <laughs> really good. Now, you're getting this for free, and the reason you can get it for free is because we have sponsors. So you're going to hear a sponsor, and I'll be right back with Taylor. We are back here with Taylor Lorenz and Jelani, who's producing and engineering this whole thing by himself. Thanks, Jelani. I just want you to tour me through the internet, but we're going to do it through the lens of some of the stories you've written sure. in the last few months. Here's a great one. What is the Instagram aesthetic and why is the Instagram aesthetic over? These are all stories that you could read on The Atlantic, but we're just going to talk about them here. Yeah. Okay. This story was like my opus. Like it's something I was thinking about for like a year, um, which is like maybe it should have been better. But um, (laughs) anyway, um, the Instagram aesthetic is what I would define as like what you think of when you think of Instagram. Like think of these Instagram museums and, you know, avocado toasts and pink walls and like beautifully composed things. Curated. And then when you say an Instagram museum, right, you're talking about 
I'm talking about like the Museum of Ice Cream, like these places that are set up just to take Instagram photos. Right. You, the, the whole idea, you, in theory, you could go not take a picture there, but the whole idea is to go there and document th- yes. there's a pizza museum and an ice cream museum or whatever. Rosé World or whatever. Yeah, where you just go and you take these perfectly staged photos in, in, you know, in front of these backdrops. As you said before, like I write a lot about like how young people are using technology and I just noticed from a lot of young people that it seemed like they were pretty over all of that and their feeds don't conform to it. And some of the fastest growing influencers that I saw on the internet were people that were breaking those norms and not engaging with it. And so I kind of just, um, also brands that were, that were, that were not adhering to that aesthetic anymore were, were growing really quickly online. So this is, I mean, is this sort of a fashion trend in the same way that you had, you know, grunge music replaced heavy yes. metal and there was a period, and then, then it went away. Yeah. It went on to something else. Yeah, exactly. And it'll, you know, continue on. I think that like with aesthetics and trends and all this stuff, it's very like something will be current for several years and then seem old. So with this like whole, I would say this Instagram aesthetic is very tied to like millennial culture and like what you think of as like what a lot of people use is like shorthand for influencer culture, which is this like pink walls, like uh, overwashed photos, avocado toast, everything perfect, everything curated. And um, for younger users and, and an increasing amount of older users too, they're just tired of that and there's this backlash against and it. So there, I'm going to present you something that is real or at least yeah. that I want you to perceive I'm gonna as real. I'm going to post crappy looking photos and I'm going to post 10 in a row because I don't care. Like I'm going to just take photos with my iPhone. I'm not going to drag a DSLR to the beach to take the perfect photo. Like I don't care if my feed matches. Like... I'm going to post more to stories. It's all about being real and in the moment and authentic. Okay, um, so be real, Instagram I mean, users. Yeah, it's like obviously you're still being performative on Instagram. But I think that also goes back to the fatigue thing where it's like people got tired. And also it became very clear like the amount of effort that was going into these perfect looks. And people were just like, this is fake and I don't want it anymore. Okay, this is great. Um, what is a T account and why is it <laughs> fueling influencer feuds? Okay, I had a dream last night about T accounts. It's so weird that you bring this up. T is spelled T-E-A. T-E-A. So, I mean, it comes from the shorthand, like, what's the T or spill the T. It's like the gossip, kind of. Which came out of, is that purely out of the internet? Is uh, that... It, it's like out of, like, I would say, like, black culture, maybe mm-hmm. kind of like internet, that, like, internet culture. It came came from the internet, but, like, I would say that corner right. of the internet, probably. It's, it's black internet slang for gossip. Yeah, okay. yeah. This is I, but it's I, sort I couldn't of like, sound whiter and older describing. Uh, it. Yeah, I mean it's like, but it's like what everyone uses now. Like, uh-huh. kind of. I mean, it's like T is is just. I mean, it's become like normalized, like any other slang word, right? Like, so a lot of people know what T is. T accounts are basically drama accounts or gossip accounts, and they're wait, account- wait, explain what a drama account. Or okay, a gossip so. Account is. Um, it's an account on something like YouTube or Instagram that just solely exists to post about like the gossip or drama within a certain Just community. Just gossip in general, not not specific gossip about a person. Well, it can be about a specific person or a spe- it's usually about a specific community. So you'll have like YouTuber tea or whatever, like a beauty community tea accounts. If you want to learn more about the fight that so-and-so is having with so-and-so, you're going to follow this yeah. account in the same way that TMZ does that, but is for exactly. more mainstream celebrities. Yeah. So there was this channel that was launched like many years ago by this guy, Keemstar, called Drama Alert. Drama Alert is like, it's it's kind of like a tea account. I mean, it's a fully produced news show now, but 
it sort of set off this way. It's very fast growing and drama channels in general have been very fast growing. Shade Room is The Shade Room is another example. I mean, there's a lot of these online that people follow to kind of get like the quote unquote real story. And it's, and it's, but it's sort of internet specific, right? If you yeah. want to know about LeBron James or not a Kardashian, no, you're not going to go there. No, it's very like internet specific in the sense that it's usually about YouTubers. It's usually about online drama. And so you, so anyway, so you follow these accounts. A lot of these T accounts saw the success of things like Drama Alert in the Shade Room and all cropped up to kind of like give the backstory of of these, you know, dramas, everyday and, dramas. And so they, they're on the internet, about the internet, for yes. internet users. There's no reason to think this is going to sort of cross over again to It's TV. crossed over a lot to celebrity culture. I mean, like some, t- I mean, the Shade Room, right, for instance, like posts a lot about like mainstream celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of T accounts that crossover for sure. Um, but mostly it's about the internet. And stuff. so you wrote about this, I, my timeline's all screwed up, but there was a, I don't even know what platform it was on. There was a, it was a makeup influencer. Who yeah, got in a James fight Charles with and Tati Westbrook. Right. And so I remember that story had then crossed over and I was reading about it on The Verge and BuzzFeed. What made, and I, I can't even begin to sort of explain that story, but it's, it's too- It was a feud between two beauty influencers. Two, okay. Very, very concisely put. Why did that one break out? What was interesting or just big enough that the sort of mainstream people were writing it's about funny. it? It's funny. I think that more mainstream people are writing about YouTube drama in general because that James West, James Charles, Tati Westbrook, that type of drama happens very regularly, uh, in especially in the beauty community, which is always having drama and call-outs. So I think, like, it was funny to see that one break through. I think it was a little bit like the Logan Paul, where Logan Paul, you know, filmed a dead body. Right. Like, where— But that, that one I understood because you would— Either you either were actually offended by what happened yeah. or you had just heard something about a YouTube star okay, but, and suicide and, 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 it, would, and, and it would alarm you, too, if you were yeah, a parent. But, uh, Logan Paul has done a million things over the year that right, would but, alarm you. But, right, but that's the thing. That one but that, that one crossed over. Crossed over, and then see. people had a vague idea that he was doing very bad things. Yeah. And actually, he's sort of a run-of-the-mill internet celebrity yeah, doing stupid yeah. stuff. But like you said, it's all sort of the same ilk. Yeah. And I would say like, I mean, with with James Charles and Tati Westbrook, like they both, I, I would say like the subscriber drop was really notable. Like when Tati did this, like call it against James Charles, like he's a million, he started losing millions of subscribers. And that's like a metric that people can really easily grasp. There's this website, Social Blade, that people did these like live counters of. So you yeah. can kind of see who's up, who's down. So I think it just became this like collective like internet fascination. Yeah, where the like, numbers do help. You're right. It, uh, it, we, I just took my kids to the to the uh, uh, Fortnite World Cup. Oh my god! I was supposed to go, but I was on vacation. I was wondering if I was going to see you wandering around there. I paid cash for my tickets. Nice. Um, but I mean, I I know that in the broader world, people picked up on it because they were giving out three million dollar prizes exactly, to the yeah. winners, and that if again, if you had no idea what I was talking about, you can make three million dollars playing video games, and that's a really I mean, Epic's genius for giving out that money because yeah. it really yeah. helped make the thing even bigger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think it's like people are suddenly realizing how much money is at stake, how much audience these people actually have and how relevant they are to, like, this massive generation of people. So it's weird, though, because sometimes other dramas seem big and are a big deal in the community but don't break out. It's it's very It seems a little bit arbitrary, but definitely more of those things are breaking through. I mean— yeah, like Business Insider is covering like YouTuber drama like every day now, I feel like. Right, and that's a 
pretty good indicator, right? If, yeah. if we think there's an audience we're going to write about. Exactly. I remember for years writing, and I was writing about the business of YouTube, but I was really struck at how little interest there was in YouTube on the internet. I mean, obviously, there were, they had billions of users, but they weren't reading articles about it, and I think that's finally changed. Um, what is a Facebook tag group? <laughs> so Facebook tag groups are just these, like, groups with really funny names um, that are like sentences. It's basically, they started as people began creating groups with this sentence that they wanted to react uh, to a status update with. So Peter, say you posted like, man, I'm having a great day today, post on Facebook. And I want to reply in the comments like, haha, sounds great, but whatever. Like, I could just make a group with that name. And then when I post it in your comments, it would come up, that sentence would come up bold in your comments because it's a group. And then other people could click on that group or tag it or use it as like a response to other people's comments. Um, so that's kind of like people started making them as jokes, like based off whatever sentence, um, because it was funny to make a group so specific, right? Like with this one specific comment. But then more people started joining those groups because you join them so that you can use them to tag. Um, but like also then these communities develop. So it becomes them. a community of people who are bonding, not because they have a shared interest in dogs or no, religion yeah. or politics. They just enjoy the idea of basically a meme. Yeah. It's like a little micro, micro meme. It's like a sentence that you made that everyone can then use if they're in on it. You had two things in that story that really struck me. One is that you said you interviewed someone who had, uh, followed 6,000 groups or 5,000 groups, 6, and that was the I max? 6,000, I think, is the max, yeah. There's like a bunch. There's actually a tag group for people that have maxed out group memberships. So if you're following five or any, you're whatever, joining. joining that number of, of tag groups, that just means you're spending all your time on Facebook sort of. Yeah, or you're just like joining every group you see. I'm in like, I think, something like 600 groups. Like, but again, I, power user rest, right? Well, I've just been joining groups since like college and I never stopped joining. I mean, I've joined every, I joined my like freshman Dorn group, like the first thing I did when I got to college. So as someone who's been in groups for a long time, when you hear Facebook saying we're groups are sort of where we're going, um, what do you think about that? I wrote a whole long piece on this for Mike in 2017 <laughs> that I don't think anyone read. Um, but it's funny. I mean, they say this. They say this. And I kind of got to it in that article, too. They say this. But they have no concept of how people actually use groups, it seems like. Like, one is people use it in this very weird, fluid nature. It's not about, like, interest-based stuff, which is what their whole ad campaign is based right. on. Right. They, they say, like, the, the equivalent, they present it as, in the old days, you would get together in a book group with your friends and now you're doing it online. It's not like that. Like that's not really how people socialize and meet. It's like you, it's more casual than that. Um, I would say also, I mean, obviously like there's been so much great, amazing, uh, you know, reporting on all the bad group Uh stuff. Like the, I mean, groups more than anything else on the platform are, are like these hotbeds for like fake news and extremism. Um, Brandy Zardovsky, I always mispronounce her name, has written, like, amazing stories on that. And, like, you know, these parent groups that are— Where does she write for? NBC News. Oh, my God. She Every story she does is, like, these crazy—she wrote about the To Catch a Predator groups where these people were essentially group—joining these groups and hunting people down. What about that one? Oh, my God, it was crazy. Or the bleach one, this parenting group where they they were feeding their children bleach to cure autism. 
And all these parents are posting in the group and telling other parents in the group, and they're all doing it. It's crazy. She's the Taylor Lorenz of NBC News. She's like, well, she, I used to work with her at Daily Beast, too. She does, like, the dark, dark, dark stuff. I would say I'm more about, like, the memes and the weird Yeah, that, that was the, the, the other line that, that, that caught me in that story was that people using the Facebook tag groups are doing it in part because it offers an escape from the wider Internet. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, like, what we talked about before, that there's this toxicity to these bigger open platforms. And the users do perceive that. Or yeah, that. definitely to a point. And, and whether or not they're like conscious of it, they have gravitated towards more closed networks recently. Um, like groups is a good example of that. Where it's just like to join these groups, you often have to fill out a short survey like saying, you know, indicating your beliefs or indicating, you know, that right. you're But online. it's not that we were just talking a second about, you know, well, let's go have our pederast group off in the side and we can do it on our own and no one will disturb yeah. us. This is... I want to go do a fun meme It's thing. like, I want to meet people. I want to meet people. I want to, like, laugh. I want to do a meme thing. <laughs> My shared interest is that I want to have an enjoyable time on the internet yeah, without having exactly, to think too hard. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I'm picking up on some of this stuff. Yeah. Last one. What is the problem with verification? Oh, <laughs> okay. Verification is the dumbest thing. Literally, like— This is the blue check mark. Yeah, the that blue I check have. mark. So, like, 10 years ago or whatever, Twitter developed this system where they're like, we're going to give blue check marks to certain people, and that's going to help us, you know, prevent this fraud. This person is a real person. This person is well, Kara Swisher. Well, yeah, like, this person is, yeah, Kara Swisher or LeBron James or whatever. And I get that. You know, you Kara's have— not listening to this, but we just compared her to LeBron James. <laughs> Pretty good. LeBron James is an athlete, Kara. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, like, you know— it's basically meant to say, like, this is the real account that you should be following. It's to prevent, you know, scammers from just stealing Sounds fine. What's game. the problem? The problem is that, like, it's so broken. Like, this, this like, binary system of, like, this person is it matters or this person doesn't. Like, I mean, here's the thing. They only gave this, Twitter and Instagram later and all these platforms only have given this to a lot. They started by only giving it to really notable people. So, <laughs> right, like... Pointing to myself. So it, so it communicates two things at once. One part of it is you're communicating this person is who they say they are. And then the other thing is like this person matters. And those two get conflated a lot. And that's the big problem. Like right now we have this thing where people are black market trying to buy verification. There's all this confusion around it. But that's a basic scam and scams have existed on the internet and obviously yeah, long like, before that. Okay, well, you this can just explain, scam. Like, you can, you, you, you can people scam are fake anything. selling or fake selling verification. Yeah, people fake selling. But that's not the problem no. you're talking about. No, but it, it's indicative of this problem because it's like nobody really understands, one, how you get verified. There's none, none of these tech companies are transparent about it. And two, what verification means. Does it mean, you know, you are who you say you are? Well, no, because it, it they all, they verify brands and they ver or they verify like anonymous random accounts, right? That that it's not they're not a human entity. Occasionally, we'll I don't know we'll have Jack Dorsey on stage at the Code Conference, and someone will ask about this, and it seems to me to be such a low order problem for Twitter. And also, I mean, if you're saying, look, there's the status marker here with a, yeah. with a check mark, sure. But there's also a status marker having a million followers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the verification thing is a is a the 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 core problem is that they're not communicating the information that they should be about users. And Instagram has helped this a little bit by allowing people to denote sort of like what they do below their thing. I mean, the big problem is like these people like you and me that are maybe journalists get their verification and then go switch to some other obscure thing, and then that that meaning changes. So like, say I quit and try to become a dancer, but suddenly I'm a verified dancer. Like that's going to affect me and people's perception of me and my opportunities because I have this check mark, and people are like, "Oh, well, you're verified in this field." So, 
I just think that they need a better way to communicate information about users than just this like check mark or no check mark. I don't know, Taylor. I got check marks, and you're saying I should get rid of my check marks, and then I'm just going to be down with a hoi polloi, and no one's going to know who I am. I don't like this. <laughs> Everyone idea. should eliminate check marks, and they should have a totally different system to like. They should split these things. Like they shouldn't be deciding who a celebrity is for one thing, because all of these other. I mean, I wrote about the site Famous Birthdays recently, which is kind of this. And that guy immediately emailed me and said, you should pay attention to me. Taylor just wrote about me. (laughs) That's funny. Evan is amazing and you should pay attention to him. But anyway, like, you know, one insight that he had is like this whole class of people is being ignored by the internet, right? Famousbirthdays.com is is a site to learn about internet celebrities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think Twitter and all these platforms have the same thing. Often the most influential people online are not people that they're giving check marks to. It's these celebrities and dumb journalists like you and me, you know, like I just hate the whole system I and I think there's journals. gotta be a better way. I feel like we should you, we yeah. should have an annotated transcript of this one so people can go, what was that famousbirthdays.com? And um the Sorry main thing you should do, no, websites, no, it's great. But. That's the whole point of this interview is <laughs> people can learn about this stuff. The main way to learn is to go follow you on yes. Twitter and Instagram, read your stuff on theatlantic.com. Um, so you're all going to go do that. But let's drop one little bit of knowledge. If you want to, if you're starting from basically zero, like you haven't gone on TikTok or something, who or what should you be following to get the best sense of where the internet is today? I follow other writers Uh and other people that are, like, good at curating. For TikTok, I would say, like, one good thing to do on Twitter is follow some of these best of TikTok accounts. If you just type TikTok in the search bar, you'll see, like, TikTok cringe and TikTok whatever. That's a good way to, like, kind of get a sense of funny things on the internet. As I mentioned, Katie Natopoulos is, like, my idol, and I think that she— always finds really funny, weird, insightful things. Very weird sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think other... I like that advice. Go on Twitter. Go on on Twitter, which we just established is a terrible place, and follow TikTok aggregator accounts and Katie Natopoulos. Okay, good. That is a really useful summary. This has been great, And me, of course. And and Taylor. Obviously, follow Taylor, (laughs) but you are already following Taylor. Taylor, you're great. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. super psyched about this, and it worked out perfectly. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. Thanks to the excellent people who helped make this podcast possible. Golda Arthur is my producer. Jelani Carter is also my producer and is a one-man wrecking crew today doing this whole thing by himself. Great job, Jelani. Joel Robbie edits this to make it sound even better. You guys are great. This is a super fun conversation. We will have another fun conversation next week.